where we need React in, in ClojureScript. Very good. I like this one. And I think there is one person that would join this talk and he's not here, but Thomas Heller is the same camp. Yep. Also, I've been talking to Vincent uh, Kantian and he's been working on a project called uh, Frack. Okay. And Frack is basically, so he, I guess like I'll give some background first. So okay. I think like a few people in Clojure community have realized that a, a lot of complexity in React is not really being used uh, from ClojureScript because Reagent has its own model with reactive atoms. And the reason React is fairly complex is because it's more unopinionated. React doesn't really have a strategy for when a component should repaint in a UI. That's left up to the user. So every time you create a component, you have to make a decision what's going to trigger an update for that component and how it should behave. Whereas Reagent says we're going to use reactive atoms and components will observe those atoms. And whenever the atom updates, then we update the component. So instead of working with a VDOM, because React doesn't really focus on the data, React focuses on managing the DOM. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reagent kind of flips it because it says, what if we focused on the data instead and then the DOM just reflects the state of the data? Well, at that point, we don't really need a VDOM anymore, do we? Because <laughs> we, we can use browser DOM directly and whenever the data changes, we can compute the diffs and figure out what the minimal change is and then just repaint those uh, components directly in the browser DOM. So in a sense, React ends up duplicating our data model because we have our actual data and then we have the VDOM that kind of loosely reflects the data in terms of UI components. Okay. Um, so there has been a few experiments with that. There is a project called Mr. Clean, which is a pure closure script implementation of Reagent API that doesn't use React. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, Thomas Heller, he also wrote quite a bit about this. And he really kind of like thought about the details and edge cases and that specifically like what will happen, you know, with dynamic collections, uh, like how do you repaint tables, for example, because there is a bit of complexity there. And you sort of need kind of like VDOM-ish behaviors there. Another project is Hoplon. So that one doesn't like get mentioned too much, but it's probably the original kind of VDOM-free approach uh, for ClojureScript. And they have this library, I think it's called... Javelin? Yes, yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Which basically kind of has cells and has this like uh, a grid, right? Like where you have the reactive cells that are interdependent. And then mm-hmm. you can kind of do spreadsheet style yeah. uh, development with that. I think another project that got people thinking about this was uh, somebody from React team went, what is it called? It's something Was it, Wasn't this felt that it yes, went this way? So that, but it's kind of interesting, right? Because with Svelte, they effectively made their own pseudo uh, JavaScript that then compiles to JavaScript. Yes. But in ClojureScript, we don't have to do it because we have macros. So (laughs) we don't really need to make a pseudo language. We can just make a macro DSL that will go through and compile stuff. Yeah. And this is exactly what Thomas uh, is exploring. Uh, everything which we just talked about, sort of the idea from Svelte uh, in, in ClojureScript. Uh, so I exactly. hope I can I can drag him once to this podcast again. 
uh, and talk about this, but I think he's still not ready. So. Oh yeah, so I think like you should uh, probably reach out to Vincent Kenton as well because um, he's working like his library rack is basically also trying to solve that problem, and he cre- uh, like right now he's working kind of like on a diff for the data elements, and then the DOM basically represents the state of the data, and then DOM elements, the components, they subscribe to the data by path, and then the engine will figure out the diffs on the data and then notify the components like what actually needs to get repainted in a granular fashion. So I think like he is extending probably some of uh, Thomas's ideas. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's really exciting because if you could just cut out React entirely, you could have really lightweight front-end code because then you can do full pruning using the Google Closure library, right, down to function level for the code you use. Because I think the issue is when you use JavaScript libraries, like interrupt nowadays is much better. I I think Shadow CLGS has done an amazing job. Correct. And like now now it's transparent. You just make package JSON, you put your NPM modules in your package JSON, you just use them from your Closure script code. You don't have to worry about um, any externs or anything like you did before. And yeah. Yeah, it's it's absolutely seamless at this point. Yeah. And but there's still the downside that you can't really prune JavaScript code effectively. Like there is some tree shaking and there is like a few approaches, but it's not really precise because JavaScript ultimately doesn't provide the information to do precise tree shaking. There is no namespaces, for example, right? <laughs> And and there's different standards as well. So depending what standard the library uses, it, it limits how much you can do with it and how libraries interact with each other. And it's just, it's in my opinion, it's a giant mess. Yeah. So being able to avoid all that and just have a pure closure script ecosystem and use something like Bulma for styling, like if you could build a set a library with a set of widgets on a native closure script framework, that I think would be huge. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's the main argument against it, right? If you use something like React or Reagent or Helix or any kind of, you have just access to this huge ecosystem of those pre-built components and you can easily plug them in. And exactly. I think this is the this is the biggest argument. And But of course, if you never start to do it, you will never end up creating your environment, so. Yeah, that's my opinion as well. And I think realistically, even when we started using stuff uh, on my team, like we pretty much didn't use a lot of um, JavaScript libraries because originally NPM integration was so painful. We would shun it because of that. But we were able to build fairly complex apps um, just using ClojureScript and using practically nothing from JS ecosystem. So, I think like for a lot of applications, it's a perfectly viable approach. Like, yeah, there's going to be cases where you really need stuff, you know, like if you're doing some visualizations or you want to do some charts and reactive elements, like, yeah, then then you probably want to use uh, JavaScript ecosystem. But if you don't need to, then for a lot of stuff, I think you can totally get away with Closure Script right now. And and I think like, yeah, like if, if we started this process and we build a... Uh, toolkit that provides common UI components and just keep growing the toolkit, that could eventually get to the point where you can use 
and like you can still plug stuff in, right? Like I mean, like React components obviously you couldn't unless you created like some adaptability layer. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like any pure JavaScript libraries, as long as they operate on the DOM, wouldn't be a problem. But another interesting thing I think would be like if you could create an API that's kind of like pluggable, that's compatible, say, with Reagent, if you use reactive atoms. And you could just swap, right? Like you could be, okay, I'm going to start with pure closure script and see how far it gets me. Okay, well, now, you know, like I actually need something from JavaScript land. Now I'll switch to Reagent and just keep going, hopefully with minimal changes. Um, and also, if you could create like a React adaptability layer, right? Like if you created uh, an API for React lifecycle that just went against the native DOM, so then React libraries wouldn't necessarily have to know that they're not working against React. That's yeah, probably a bigger uh, project, but... Yes, I'm afraid it's also a moving target, right? Uh, yeah. Because you have you would have the component lifecycle, then you have hooks. Who knows what comes after? Yeah. Uh, so maybe that would be also... Problem because I have a feeling now everybody in the JavaScript community they are moving to the hooks, right? And all of the libraries are being rewritten and they're in the uh, hooks uh, pattern, if you will. Yeah, I find that that's kind of like the typical JavaScript <laughs> development yeah. experience. Every six months, you know, it's like, okay, abandon everything you were doing. And like, I honestly like it, it shocks me that people are able to maintain production applications in that environment. I just like, I don't know how you get the energy for that. Because like you basically have two choices. Either you stick with whatever you started with and then your application becomes legacy and doesn't get updates and there's no documentation, right? And yeah. it's just like you're on your own. Or you have to throw away everything you did and effectively rewrite your app. like. So Angular is a good example. I remember what a few years ago, Angular was like a big deal, and people were like, oh, is it gonna be React or Angular? <laughs> like, which one should I choose? And just like every release of Angular, it's just okay, we're throwing everything out. Here's a new Angular. Right. And people will be like, okay, I guess I'm just rewriting my whole app. No biggie. And that's like in React ecosystem, maybe it's happening to a lesser extent, because at least the core API tends to be stable and just the patterns change. Mm. But it's still, yeah, like if, you know, if you started before flags or hooks or whatever, and now like all this new stuff happened, like even if you don't uh, have to rewrite your code, you still kind of have to learn those patterns because other people are using them, libraries are using them. So it's this cognitive load of juggling all these different patterns and approaches. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm sometimes I'm, I have to two thoughts about this. Sometimes I'm feeling like I'm interesting where this will end up. If React will end up in such a place that this, at, at a certain point it's just so uh, obscure and it's just so hard to understand what's going on with it, or it will create some kind of a pattern that everybody would say, yes, this is it. This is what we've been looking for or for a long time, and this is exactly how we stick to it. Then. Um, I think like it's kind of did that already because we, we did learn like the whole VDOM pattern is very appealing, and especially coupled with immutable data the way Reagent does it. So I think like we did like get some learnings from React, like some fundamental ideas there, which again like you could really trace back to before React because it's it's very similar concept to double buffering in games, for example. Where you know, instead of just repainting the screen every time, we'll compute the changes in the background on them. 
<laughs> repaying them in efficient ways. So it's not even that React is inventing anything new, fundamentally, in my opinion. But I think that's the other big aspect of development and keeping up with technology is that there is a big difference between fundamental ideas and superficial ones. Fundamental stuff is a concept or a pattern that's independent of a specific technology, in my opinion. Like stuff like the concept of double buffering. And you can apply that, like once you understand the co concept, you can apply it in different contexts. You can apply it to games, web apps, whatever. But I find a lot of complexity in libraries and frameworks. It's kind of an incidental complexity because it's just something the person writes in the library figured out and that they were comfortable with. And you're basically just teaching yourself to think like the person who made the library. But there, and I think like the pattern I notice, especially in JavaScript, what happens is that somebody has a problem to solve and they look around and they see say something like Angular and they go, it's like, yeah, that's too complex. Like, I don't need this. I need something simpler. So they're like, you know what? Like, my problem is fairly focused. I'm just going to build my own thing. And they build their own thing and solve their problem. And they publish it as open source. And then people are going like, oh, hey, this thing is really simple. I like it. And they start using it and so it's become popular. And of course, as it becomes popular, people start using more different use cases. And now it starts getting complexity because now you have to address more and more general use cases the more widely used it becomes. And eventually it becomes complex. And then what happens next? Well, somebody looks around, it's like, eh, too complex. I'm going to solve my problem. And the cycle begins like anew. Right. And, and we see it everywhere, I, I think, like in development. Like libraries grow huge. Frameworks grow huge. They become abandoned because they become too complex. People start with a new one. But then like if you look, if you like zoom out and look from Eagle's eye view, you notice that the problems they're solving are effectively the same problems. And so nothing really new being invented here. It's just people just get like rehash on the same pattern over and over. And I feel that our closure community does a bit better because the focus on small libraries that are focused on kind of like doing a specific thing and doing data transformation as opposed to trying to be a framework and doing this inversion of control on a user. And then you can just pipe those libraries together in a way that makes sense to you. So not trying to do too much and not being too opinionated, but just keeping things focused is a much better approach because then, then it's kind of like Lego. You know, you, you have a bunch of Lego pieces and you can put them together in the way you want. You pick the pieces you want, stick them together, you get a thing. You can take the same pieces, stick them in a million different ways and get different results. Yeah. But the pieces then, themselves, you know, you build them once, you build them solid and <laughs> you just leave them alone. And I think this is also maybe the other side of the things is uh, normally in JavaScript or you would have those frameworks that just make all of those choices for you. So it's probably much easier to start. Where here you need to figure out, okay, which libraries should I actually use and how do I stitch them together? Exactly. So I think this is a bit the learning curve that you need to go through uh, as a closure developer. Uh, so yeah, it's not as straightforward as uh, even Rails, right? You just scaffold everything and that's it. And I think like that's kind of, I guess, like where Luminous tries to meet people halfway, where it's, yeah, there's libraries, but we'll just package it up for you. 
and right. you can get started fairly quickly. So like same defaults and then yeah, batteries included. But then yeah, like if you, you know if you do need to do your own thing, then you have the code, you can change your project and go nuts. Mm-hmm. I think there is really a lot of wisdom in everything what you said. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I think <laughs> I think you can definitely hear that you spend some time thinking about it and reflecting on it. Um, so where do we what do we do from now? What's what's your vision of all of those things then? So I guess like for Luminous, I think at this point, I don't expect to make like a lot of big changes to it. Mm-hmm. Aside from like if, if there's gonna be really something new and exciting happening in the closure ecosystem. But I would like to at some point uh think about how to manage to really abstract, like I find I guess what, what happens with a lot of apps is we still do a lot of boilerplate. Like with any framework I've used, like ClojureScript or, you know, like other technologies, uh, non-closure related, there's still quite a bit of stuff you end up having to do. Like when you want to make a simple thing, right? Like you, you want to make, I don't know, like a forum input. You know, you have to make your forum fields, you got to connect them to your server, you got to pass the data. And there's a lot of moving pieces that happen. And that's where potentially like people like stuff like Rails, where it just kind of like papers over that complexity. And we don't really have that in closure script right now. So like stuff I was exploring, um, me and a few friends published a library called Domino that kind of is inspired by some of the work we've done at UHN. And the idea there is, again, like kind of like related to the thing we were talking about earlier, where do we really need a VDOM? And this kind of approaches more from the aspect of managing your data in relationships. And what I find is usually in a lot of apps, the pattern is you kind of have a document that you operate on and you have a bunch of functions that change stuff within the document. And there are some relationships between that code. So for example, like say you have height and weight and BMI. And if I change height or weight, I I want to update a BMI. Or maybe, you know, I need to show height in both centimeters and inches. So I need to do those like conversions. And if you think about a typical application, it has a lot of this kind of concerns, right? Like where you have functions that operate on related data, but the relationships between those functions are implicit. So I find that's what really makes projects difficult to maintain in the long run as they grow, because you have a lot of code, but relationships in code are implicit in that code. It's basically if my function calls another function, there's a relationship. Mm-hmm. But I have to read through all the code to see like all the code call sites for a particular function. And I kind of have to build up that graph in my head of what code relates to what code, which code operates on related data, when it gets called, why it gets called. And the idea we had was that what if you make those relationships explicit? What if you uh, declare your data model upfront? And then you create handler functions that explicitly say, I operate on this input path in a document and I produce this output path. 
And once you do that, you can build a graph of relationships between those functions. You can say, you know, if this path was modified, what is all the code that actually operates on that data? And it's going to be triggered and run and why it runs. So now you can start answering those questions. Mm-hmm. So the idea with stuff like Domino is to say, if you build up a replication by expressing it through this framework, by declaring our data, declaring the code that operates on the data, ex- the explicit relationships to the data, and explicitly declaring the side effects, saying that, okay, you know, you effectively do a transaction, right? So whenever some input comes into the system, you transact that with all the functions that operate on related data, create new state, and then based on that state, you can fire events and do side effects. And again, you can declare those side effects explicitly on what pieces of data they observe and what they're doing. And with this kind of library, you could potentially start building GUI tools to inspect what the relationships in code are. So then you can you know, show a graph of all your functions and how the data flows through those functions and what the relationships are. Mm-hmm. So I feel that that could be an actual framework that has value because if you get to the point where as a user, you basically say, I'm going to declare some data, I'm going to declare some functions that operate in data, I'm going to specify the relationship, and I'm going to build a UI that just references the data. And the UI can be completely done. Like All the UI does is observe a piece of data and produce user inputs back into the system. And that's it. So that, that's actually another benefit here is because if you keep your UI, keep all the logic outside the UI, you don't really need to test your UI anymore. You just look at it visually, and if it looks right, that's it. That's all you need to know about it. And you don't have to worry about, you know, your kind of like implicit logic being baked in, into your UI somewhere, because that's another thing that happens. You get a long-running system. People sprinkle ad hoc logic all throughout that system. And then you try to make changes to it or updates, and it becomes impossible to guarantee that you didn't miss something. Because unless you literally read through all the code, you don't know if there is some code that does something you that would surprise you that you didn't expect. Closure helps, helps mitigate that because data is immutable. So at least you don't have to worry about doing it through side effects, but there are still a lot of ways to create relationships even with immutable data in practice. Especially, right, like if you use something like Reframe where you have a big shared DB, so then it's easy to write a bunch of events that will operate in the same piece of data and change it, or subscriptions that in different places. It's Again, it's easier than dealing with side effects, but it's still non-trivial in the big app. But if you make your UI completely dumb, and then you move all your logic into a managed system that forces you to explicitly declare relationships between the logic. I think that uh, results in much easier to maintain applications. Hmm. So did you use this uh, Domino on any other of the projects? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we are building an app with it right now uh, for work. And we have like an older internal closed source system that Domino is inspired by that we actually use in production. Mm-hmm. And we are finding that it is uh, 
a lot easier to work with. So I did a presentation at Closure North last year about it. If people are interested, they can kind of like take a look. It goes into detail. Yeah. But the main idea is that we can express a lot of it is just kind of like user forms where it's data collection and maybe some metrics and analytics. But we're able to express all of that pretty much completely declaratively. So we create a big hidden file to represent the UI and all the relationships and we just put in the database and then when the system runs it just checks all the available apps and loads them up and it's great and we've been able to get co-op students to just go in and build forums like with minimal training so and there is like very little chance for people to screw things up because the whole framework guides you towards doing the right thing and it inhibits some of the anti-patterns, in my opinion, like implicit relationships. Okay, so I, I think I missed this point. Or So this is another framework. This is not part, this is not something you can plug in Luminous. This um, is something... You could. Well, right now, so okay. it is a library, but I think like it's a framework in the sense that it does impose its own way of doing things on the user because mm. basically it consists of three parts. There is... Um, the data model, the UI, and the code, the events that operate on the data model, mm -hmm. kind of like the business logic of the application. And it forces you to express your application in those terms. Like if you want to have a field, then you have to declare it in your data model. If you want to operate on that field, then you create an event handler that operates on the field. And if you want to display in the UI, then you basically reference that path in the UI. Mm -hmm. um, so that I think is kind of like it creates a higher level abstraction where you don't really think about the underlying details of how things connect, but you really mm -hmm. think about like how to express your logic and how it reflects in the user interface. Yeah. So I don't think so, like mm, go ahead. No, I just wanted to ask. So how rendering happens? What I'm just trying to So rendering sort of... we, like the way we use it work, we just use reframe. So reframe basically keeps the state of the UI, but then for each widget, so you'd have like say text inputs, charts, whatever widget you can think of, mm -hmm. uh, the widget will have a subscription to a path in the data model in the document. And the widget can either, when a value of the path changes, it observes it and repaints, and whenever the user makes changes, it notifies back to the transactor. So that's kind mm -hmm. of the relationship there. So the UI is still managed by, basically, it's unopinionated about that. We just okay. use reframe, but you, you could use something, right, like without a VDOM and so on, like um, VRAC or Thomas's idea. But, but then, like, the logic engine actually runs as a transactional engine. And it's basically a data flow engine that executes a transaction and then notifies or returns back the set of fields that change that you can propagate back to the UI. Like, so it works, we use a WebSocket, and whenever changes happen, basically you send it over the socket to the server, server transacts, and then notifies all the clients of the changes. Mm -hmm. And now in our use case, we have kind of like a multi-user system. So you'd have multiple people working on a document concurrently. And then this allows, that was actually the original motivation behind it, and kind of like the rest of it grew out of it. But our concern was if you have multiple people working on a forum and there is real business logic for related fields in the forum, like let's say if I'm changing 
weight and your change in height, and we need to compute a BMI, then we might have a problem because we'll have like a collision or we might have users stepping on each other when they try to edit the same field. Right. So we realized we needed some mechanism to say, okay, if a user is in a specific field, we need to lock that field and other related fields from all the other users on a particular document. And then whenever the user finishes, we run our transaction and update those fields and allow other users to interact with them. And that's kind of like where it fell out from. And then we realized there was all those other benefits. Um, I'm intrigued uh, by everything. I thought we started to talk about Luminous, and I think we're in a totally different library, but it's very interesting. I guess it's uh, kind of uh, we're moving to cat uh, territory of how we can build on top of Lumin what Luminous does and how we can like really move forward. Yeah. Um, so. I guess you're still working on all of those concepts and all of those things that uh, you try to uh, probably go through and understand. Um, do you have any kind of window in mind that you would say, you know, I think it would be good to talk about this again in whatever, and maybe that would be a good time to catch up again and just talk about this in more detail? Oh, yeah, no, that's a good idea because uh, we're still doing Domino. We're actually doing... Um big revision on it. It's mm -hmm. in alpha stages right now. We finalized the API, but we want to tweak performance a bit. So once that's ready, that might be a good time to chat because then maybe we can chat about Domino and how it works. Yeah. Uh, potentially yeah, good White Scott because he, he did a lot of work on it as well. And sure. He'll, he'll have some ideas to share. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so I think like, that would be... In a few months. Yeah. Just let me know. You're more than welcome, and Scott as well, even though I don't know him. Excellent. Yeah, no, I'll pass it on to him and see if uh, <laughs> we can get up. Absolutely. Yeah, let's try to do that. Let's try to explore all those ideas which you came up with and then, you know, um, see where we can get with that. Yeah, it sounds exciting. Cool. Um, so one more thing about Luminous. If someone has any questions or problems with Luminous, what's the best way to reach out and ask? And uh, Probably Slack, because uh, there was a fairly active community now on mm -hmm. Clojureans, yeah. and you probably can get help in real time. Um, otherwise, issues and, of course, pull requests and stuff are very welcome. Um, mm -hmm. I'm also, yeah, I'll plug that if anybody is interested to become a contributor or help maintain, uh, reach out to me. I, I would love to have some help on it. Yeah, and I think definitely we should uh, plug the book uh, that you wrote, and uh, Scott uh, was the other person that wrote this book? Yeah. Or there was, yeah. Um, so there is the uh, web development with closure third edition that uh, you're yeah. working on. Is this in early access or? Yes, it is. So we're in beta right now. Um, yeah. Last couple of chapters have been going a bit slow, but uh, most of the core content is done now. So mm -hmm. if somebody picks it up, you can basically you'll learn you know how to structure a basic app, uh, what the moving pieces are, how to work with databases. Um, Closure script, web sockets, reframe, reagent, all of that is done. Right now, we're just working on um, user management, authentication. I think we just pushed out actually an update on that. And Scott's kind of like wrapping up a big chunk. So, the way I guess like I can explain also how we're building stuff in there. So, the idea is we start with a really basic uh, guest book app, which is the same as in a luminous kind of like tutorial on the website. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we're basically just going how you would organically grow this app into a real, uh, real world app. 
which we're kind of like doing basically Twitter style social media platform, which is Android. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we want to show is how Clojure allows you to start with something really simple, maybe a prototype, maybe just, you know, an idea spike. And instead of having to rewrite it once you decide, okay, this is what I want to do, you can just keep building on it fairly easily and add in more and more features until it becomes a real application. So you can you can take your prototypes and just grow them. And that, that's kind of like the structure of the book. So it's it's very interactive. Mm-hmm. Everything focuses on kind of like user doing the work and building the app and learning as they go. And yeah, like you go basically from like something really basic to a real application with user management, authentication, database access, all the works. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I think definitely people should check it out. If you're interested in web development with Clojure, I think this is one of the great resources that you can start with. And uh, yeah. So yeah, let's try to catch up in a couple of uh, months, weeks, uh, whatever time allows, and talk about Domina. Yeah, sounds point. like a plan. That'll, that'll be fun. All right. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or any other platform you're listening to. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it, discuss it on your own podcast, and you can support it directly by buying my video courses and learning ClojureScript and Clojure at my website, jacekshe.com. That's J-A-C-E-K-S-C-H-A-E.com. Thank you for your support of this show.